Welcome to The Real Talk with Tanya Sakowitz podcast, where we help parents and caregivers gain knowledge to increase their confidence and their success in caring for young children. We will cover topics like feeding your baby, getting your baby and you some much needed sleep, and pretty much anything else that has to do with caring for babies and their families after birth. Society sets parents up to fail, and we are here to change that. You can also find full video versions of each episode on our YouTube channel, Newborn Care Solutions. Thanks for tuning in. Good evening and welcome to Real Talk, where every Sunday night we offer insight, education, and resources to in-home caregivers and those affected in their world. This is the children, the parents, the extended family, and everyone who loves them. Our goal is to offer real-life topics and learning through discussion and looking at these real issues and offering real solutions. Tonight, I'm very excited to welcome our guest, Lindsay Hookway from the UK. Lindsay is an experienced pediatric nurse, a children's public health nurse, an international board certified lactation consultant, otherwise in our world known as an IBCLC, and a holistic sleep coach and a birth trauma recovery practitioner. If you'd like to read a little bit more about Lindsay, her bio is in our feed. But tonight we're going to kind of dig into a topic that has a lot of kind of definitions in the world. It's got a lot of controversy around it, but Lindsay's an expert in this area. And after looking at so many different things out there, I really think she's got some great things to share with you. And we're going to talk about these tonight, and we're going to talk about some of these definitions and get into them. Um, and I know that Lindsay's going to give you some really great takeaways that you and your family are going to benefit from. So welcome, Lindsay. It's really great to have you. And you. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's fun to be here. It absolutely is. And thanks for joining us from all the way on the other side of the world. That's <laughs> Across that pond, yeah. you know. It's amazing what technology will do for us tonight. Right, uh, right. So before we dig into this, Lindsay, can you tell us just a little bit about kind of your journey into the world of babies and lactation and sleep and all this stuff and anything else that'll help our audience get to know you a little bit better? So, yes. So I've been a, a pediatric nurse for almost 20 years, um, which makes me feel a little old now. Um, and I, I remember as a, a brand new, sparkly, shiny fresh-faced 20-year-old pediatric nurse, um, there was kind of this moment for me where I was um, supporting this very, very new mum. She had a two-day-old baby who was admitted with jaundice, and I was taking care of this little one and um, doing his bilirubin checks and taking the samples up to the NICU. I had to do it manually in those days because it was a long time ago. And um, I remember the second night that I was working um, on shifts, uh, she was trying to express some milk and I sat beside her. I was useless actually, from a practical point of view. Uh, I didn't, you know, you're, you're given about two hours training as a pediatric nurse in supporting breastfeeding, believe it or not. And um, I sat on the bed next to her and I rubbed her shoulders and I told her what a great job she was doing and the milk poured out. And I, I realized in that moment that there was something about a therapeutic presence that, that went above and beyond just a practical skill. But I was hooked from a breastfeeding point of view. I was hooked. I was like, this is amazing. I've got to, 
I've got to learn more about this. So very quickly, I kind of wafted, drifted into um, supporting breastfeeding and also a lot of the time responsive bottle feeding as well, because it's a real myth that IBCLCs are anti bottles or anti formula. We're not at all. Um, we're just into supporting babies to be fed the best possible way that they can be in that particular circumstance. But as I began to dive into supporting breastfeeding and responsive feeding and building parental confidence, I realized very quickly that it was always about sleep. Sleep is always way up high on people's agendas. Um, and so I, I began to realize that actually there were certain ways of supporting families with sleep that could be compatible with, with breastfeeding and responsive parenting. Um, whereas some of the strategies that sometimes people talk about are perhaps detrimental to the responsive feeding relationship. And that's kind of where I um, got started with it. And of course that was helped along a lot by my own two kids and the fact that <laughs> I, I sort of realized in a very visceral way that sleep deprivation sucks big time and um, there just has to be a better way than either living with it or leaving little ones to cry and get upset. So here I am, mm -hmm. I'm still doing what I love and, um, you know, writing about it and talking about it with anybody who'll listen to me. Um, so, so that's, yeah, that's me. Yeah. No, we've, uh, you and I have talked about this a bit, um, <laughs> more than once, <laughs> um, because we are both very passionate about supporting families and about babies not needing to be left to cry, that it doesn't have to happen that way, but acknowledging, and we want to acknowledge this for the parents that we're working with, for all the families that we're working with, that sleep deprivation is horrible. You said it sucks. And when we talk about it in a lot of our classes, I say there's a reason why sleep deprivation is a form of torture. Um, and I actually have studied and teach on what it does to the brain and what it does to our bodies and how, how much it impacts us. So I would 100% agree with you. The number one thing that we hear all the time is how do I get my babies to sleep? So we're going to talk about that tonight. And we're going to talk around a lot of different aspects, including some of the controversial ones sometimes, and why you and I are pretty much in alignment on a lot of this kind of thing. So why is it that people find sleep so challenging? Why is this such a huge issue? Well, I mean, you said it yourself, but sleep is a, a basic human need, right? Um, we find it very difficult to function, but I think it's bigger than that. And I think it goes beyond just being tired as well. I think it's also about the adaptation to parenthood. It's about, you know, the fact that all of the relationships that we have within our family change. So when you become a parent, the relationship you have with your own parent is brought into sharp focus. The relationship you have with your co-parent, if you have one, is changed and altered and needs to adapt. Um, and then you also have relationships with your peers and some of them you might have been friends with for, you know, years, decades. And then all of a sudden you find that you're not on the same page when it comes to parenting. And, and that's really weird and a little messed up at times. So I, I think you know, it, it's not always about just sleep, but of course, when you're up caring for a little human in the middle of the night, it's tiring. 
um, and nothing can prepare you for it. And I think, you know, one of the things that makes it harder is the fact that nobody can agree on the right way to support little ones with sleep. And a lot of the time, the strategies that people are recommending are at odds with our instincts. Um, and then we've got social media and we've got friends and we've got great Auntie Aggie and we've got, you know, books and downloadables and apps. And oh, my goodness, it's so confusing, so confusing for families. No wonder they're kind of, you know, just feeling bombarded and overwhelmed by this stuff. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I agree with you. And I think, you know, you kind of touched on it, too. But society puts so many cultural expectations particularly, I don't know about in the UK, but certainly here in the United States, there is this expectation and almost this sense that if your baby's not sleeping through the night, and that has its own set of definitions, but if your baby's not sleeping through the night, by the time they're 12 weeks old, somehow you're viewed by so many people as you're a bad parent. And biologically, it's not supposed to happen by that point in a eight or 10 or 12 hour stretch where they're not disturbed, where there's not something going on. And so with everything else, then we've got societal pressure and judgment as well. And I don't know about the UK, but here in the US, we've certainly become a culture that is doing a fine job of shaming parents when yeah. we think they're not doing something right. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you can't really get it right at all. Can you? Because if you, um, you know, if you bottle feed, you're shamed. If you breastfeed, you're shamed. If you have the baby in the bed with you, you're shamed. If you sleep train, you're shamed. I mean, it's so hard for people to get this right. And I think that's where you have to find your village mm -hmm. and find like-minded souls who kind of get where you're coming from, because otherwise um, you can end up feeling, you know, that tall. Um, and I think, you know, obviously in the US, you've got much shorter parental leave than we do in the UK. We've got much longer, but I think it's the same problem. There's still the expectation that by X number of weeks or months or, you know, weights, sometimes crazy things, people have this expectation that babies should be sleeping through the night. And if they're not, then what have you done wrong? Um, you've obviously been too soft, too stupid, too, um, you know, to I don't know what but mm -hmm. you you didn't get it right you messed up somehow and it's your own fault that you're so tired because if you just listened mm -hmm. and done x y and z then you would be sleeping right now so you've only got yourself to blame and we kind of hear that um, a lot in our culture and of course a lot of it is not evidence-based you know a lot of it comes from studies that look at older children so for example there's some good evidence that having a genuine short sleep duration in school age children is detrimental for their learning and their memory and their school performance. But a lot of people extrapolate that evidence to little babies who are waking in the night and say, well, if you don't sleep train, it's bad for their development. Well, hold on a minute. No, it's not. That's not what the evidence says. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of time, you know, people are kind of misinterpreting research and putting out fake news, which again, adds to more confusion, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. So I say you can always find a study that if you look at it the right way, can support your viewpoint, yeah. um, even if it's not <laughs> accurate and is not applicable to what we're talking about. Um, yeah. So you've mentioned it a couple of times. I want for our audience, for you to share your definition by what you mean by sleep training. 
Um, because sleep training is a term that I don't even use anymore, except to say this is a term we don't use anymore because it's become so associated with so many negative things. So share with us, our audience, kind of what you mean and what you're talking about. Okay, so uh, I want to preface this, though, by saying this is my opinion. So this is my opinion about what sleep training is. And other people, you included, might define it in a different way. But for me, I think it would be really easy if we could say this particular technique is the definition of sleep training. But I don't think that's true. I think it's much more complicated than that. I think it's got something to do with um, a parent um, deliberately and systematically pushing um, an agenda about how their baby is going to sleep or not sleep um, that is not perhaps uh, responsive to where the infant is coping in terms of their emotional state and their um, their stress state and everything else. So, for example, um, while I would definitely put cry it out and controlled crying or graduated extinction or the checking method or however you want to call it, but leaving them to cry for brief periods and then coming and checking, I would definitely put those two in the category of sleep training. But I would also put strategies like pick up, put down, um, usually in the category of sleep training, because normally infants cry and a really quite excessive amount during this technique and it isn't really responsive to where the infant is Mm -hmm. but I would also you know techniques like putting the baby in the crib or cot and patting the mattress and sitting right beside the baby um, so you're in the room with the baby I would define that as sleep training if the baby was becoming very very distressed and dysregulated as well now if the baby's okay if they're lying in their crib and they're you know, gurgling and falling asleep, then that's not sleep training. So there's something about it not being responsive to the infant's emotional state. There's something about putting putting an agenda on the baby that's perhaps not biologically or developmentally or nutritionally appropriate, like, for example, removing night feeds from an infant who still probably needs them. Um, but I think it's also something to do with the technique at times as well. So that's not a very succinct definition, which is why everybody kind of has their own opinion on what it is and what it isn't. Right. And I think too, people use a lot of, um, kind of a generic term, but they're actually referring to one specific methodology. The one, the reason why I won't use that term anymore, except in the context of saying we don't use this term, is because at least here in the U.S., it has become so associated with cry it out. And I'm not a fan of cry it out. I'm, you know, for me, I tell all the time, I tell parents, I tell students, if you meet their needs, if you are responsive to them, when they are biologically ready to do so they will organically and naturally do this on their own and if they're not doing it they're showing you they still need you for some reason and so you know in in a sense we're still kind of in that same ballpark in terms of terminology um but it's all over the place here too often sleep training automatically assumes that you mean cry it out and not, I'm not a fan. We don't, we don't do it. Um, but people are doing it. 
that's part of why I was, you know, banging my, as I said, banging my head against the computer screen when I talked to you last week um, about a little tiny, tiny, tiny baby who was being subjected to that. Um, why is this not necessarily the right way to do things? What is it that we're missing? Sleep training, you mean? Yeah. Yes. So if we're talking about things like um, non-responsive care of infants in the night or trying to make them conform to a sleep schedule, for example, it's not responsive. And um, there, there are a few studies that have tried to prove that it's safe and it's not harmful. The studies have got some serious flaws in methodology and um, dropout rates and uh, whether it's generalizable and all kinds of nerdy stuff that I won't bore your poor viewers with right now. I've blogged about it. Feel free to go and look at the blogs. Um, but the the point the point I want to make about those studies is I'm not I'm not here to shame anybody. If you have sleep trained and it worked for you and your baby, well, great. I'm really pleased about that. But number one, the studies haven't really been able to conclusively prove. Um, that there is no harm because they're just not good enough. So they haven't proven that there is harm from sleep training, but they also haven't proved that there's no harm. So for me, that's enough of a reason to not do it. That's number one. Number two, there's something about um, the fact that little ones can't compartmentalize their expectations of parental behavior. You know, you they expect us to be responsive 24 seven. If we're responsive at two o'clock in the afternoon, but we're non-responsive at two o'clock in the morning, what does that tell um, our little ones about what they can expect from us? Like sometimes we're going to be there and sometimes we're not going to be there. For me, that doesn't go hand in hand with a culture of responsive parenting. And the third thing is a bit of an elephant in the room, but Lots of parents don't want to do it. They find it really stressful. And I suppose what I'm trying to do is um, just uh, kind of highlight the possibility for parents that they don't have to do it that way. There is another um, approach to handling sleep. Um, it might not get the same outcomes. I think that's a fallacy. You know, you, it's not necessarily true that if you um, tackle sleep in a really responsive way, you're going to get the same results. You're not necessarily going to get an infant sleeping through the night by 12 weeks. I can't compete with that, mm -hmm. but there's something bigger and better. I think that you can get from that, which is a greater sense of parenting confidence and self-efficacy, a greater attunement between parent and child. And, um, and also it just, it isn't as stressful. It's, it's, it's nicer for parents um, nobody really wants to listen to their beloved child screaming and crying and vomiting um, with distress in the middle of the night. It's just not nice, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. I had a conversation just last week with, with someone who's not a student of our company, but nevertheless said, hey, I have a question. Um, I'm working with this parent and they're not doing this and they're not doing this. And so their baby's like 10 months old and not sleeping through the night. And I, my first question was, do they view it as a problem? Quite. And she said, well, no, they don't. I, you know, but, but the baby, sh and I said, wait, stop right there. If they don't view it as a problem, they're parenting in the way that they feel is appropriate for their family. You don't get to judge that. You have to let it go. And she was like, oh, so it's okay that the baby's not sleeping. Yes, it is because it's their family. It's their decision. And they were happy and confident in their decision and they felt good about it. And that's, 
it's huge. Yeah, it really is. And it, it, I mean, it goes back at least 200 years to, you know, people trying to medicalize the, the sleep and early parenting and feeding and the perinatal space, you know, that the men in white coats of, you know, the 1800s saying, well, you know, we can't possibly, you know, let babies just feed whenever they want to. We've got to put them on a strict four hourly schedule and you've got to do two minutes on the right breast and two minutes on the left breast on the first day. And then you've got to do three minutes on the right breast and three. And all of this stuff, all this, you know, rubbish advice um, is actually really old. Um, It's not new stuff. Four hourly feeding, sleep training, leaving them to cry, being non-responsive, all of that stuff. It's a good couple of hundred years old now. And unfortunately, there's something called the illusory truth effect, whereby basically people, the more they hear a particular concept repeated, the more it sort of starts feeling like it might be the truth. So if you keep hearing, well, babies must be sleeping through the night by six months or whatever, they shouldn't need night feeds. It's not necessary to have night feeds after six months. The more you internalize that as truth, Mm -hmm. which is problematic. Right. And what I think a lot of our audience wants to know is, okay, I kind of didn't feel good about this idea of letting my baby cry. And I like that you're telling me this, right? And I tell parents all the time, if it feels uncomfortable, if you tell me you feel sick to your stomach at the thought of doing it, it's not right for you. It's not right for your family. But here's what they want to know. What are the alternatives? And how are we going to get through this hole? (laughs) <laughs> and not exhausted yeah. and falling apart. So what are the yeah. alternatives? Yeah, it's a really, it's, I knew you were going to ask it because everybody does. And um, like I said, I can't compete in lots of ways. I'd be lying if I said, well, you know, do it this way. And you're still going to get, you know, the sleep that you want. You're just not going to have any crying. I don't think that's a fair or realistic thing to tell families, but um, there are some practical things you could do. Number one, you need support. You need your support network, whether that's a doula, whether that's a newborn care specialist, whether that is a really decent co-parent, whether that's family or whatever, but you need support. That's the first thing. The second thing is to have realistic expectations of your little one. Um, and that means, you know, knowing what's normal. So for example, 12 hours sleep overnight and, you know, three hours total sleep time in the day is not normal for a four or five month old. It's, it's on the upper end of um, normal levels of sleep. Lots of 10 month old, six month old, four month old babies will only achieve 10 or 11 hours sleep overnight and maybe two to three hours of sleep in multiple little chunks. That's normal. So having some realistic expectations about what, you know, the upper and the lower limit of normal infant sleep is at different ages can really help. I think the other thing that you can do is um, learn to uh, appreciate the power of your own emotional state on your little ones. So that means taking care of yourself, um, whether that is with some mindfulness, whether that is lighting a scented candle, whether that is putting your favorite perfume on, whether that is having a walk or whatever it is, Um, But feeling good and projecting Mm. that calm really, really helps little ones to sleep. The other thing that you can do is um, not try and set yourself up to fail by thinking that your baby's got to have these monster naps in the day that will often be detrimental for their nighttime sleep. Because you can only get so much sleep 
in 24 hours. So if your little one is pulling three 90 minute naps at the age of six months, the chances are you're going to pay for that overnight uh, because actually that's a lot of sleep to be getting in the middle of the day. And then I think the other thing is to that you can start to put some limits in place uh, because it is your body. It is, um, you know, your parenting style. You don't have to feed your baby back to sleep every 40 or 50 minutes overnight if you don't want to. That It is OK to say to little tiny humans, do you know what, darling, you had a feed 45 minutes ago. I'm going to give you a cuddle. I'm going to. Um, I'm going to give you to your dad. I'm going to give you to um, my co-parent and they can give you a little bit of settling time now. And I'm going to go and get a break because you don't actually need to feed every 45 minutes um, with an older baby, or even a younger baby for that matter. So I think you can put limits in place without being non-responsive. It's not about, you know, well, you're just going to have that baby attached to your breast for the next 18 months of your life. There's no other way around it. There are but it's about finding an alternative that is still respectful and still responsive, but gives you a bit of balance as well. Yeah, while you were saying that balance was the term that kept coming through my head and I was thinking that's right. Um, and I think you mentioned something about, you know, it's not normal or, you know, it's not realistic to expect that every baby is gonna do like this 12 hour stretch and every baby is different. And I know when my kids were little, my son was a champion sleeper. My daughter, not so much. And my husband used to say, why doesn't she sleep as long as he did? And I would say, look, she's, number one, she's waking up happy. She's, everything is fine developmentally. She just doesn't need as much sleep as he does. And I had to explain to him also the concept that realistically, no one actually sleeps through the night for 12 solid hours. And he's like, well, what do you mean? I said, did you roll over? Did you get up and go to the bathroom? Did you get a drink? Well, yeah. I said, exactly. You're a grown adult and you don't sleep 12 hours without moving, without waking up. It's just as an adult, we don't usually <laughs> need as much help to get back to sleep. <laughs> um, but those are things that are super important. So what would you tell parents about their expectations? How do they know what, how to set realistic expectations for themselves and their family? What should they look at? Well, I think that there are some good sources of information out there. Um, I take my um, normal data sets from the National Sleep Foundation. So that's a very, very large data set and it looks at sleep in a cross-cultural way. So it looks at, um, you know, a lot of the time, different parts of the world so um, this is really important because it can leave some people feeling like sleep is out and actually it's completely normal um, in uh, you know the, the, the place where they are so um, the National Sleep Foundation is a good resource and that gives you these broad averages um, that are realistic to expect for children of different ages. And I, that's certainly um, the source that I go to when I'm producing um, literature, either for my books or for my social media posts or whatever. Um, and that 
that's where my about to come from to that data set unusual for little ones to get out overnight until they hit the age of two so that's a lot later than a lot of people think absolutely um so is there anything else that you'd kind of like to leave our audience with as kind of a final takeaway Lindsay? if you could say as a parent i want you to know or as a caregiver even because a lot of our audience are caregivers here's one thing i want you to know what would that be there's so many nuggets that I'd love to leave you with. Um, I'm going to do two. I'm going to be naughty okay. and do two. One is that um, sleep will get better. It really, really will get better eventually. All kiddies will eventually sleep. It's hard to believe that when you're in the pit of sleep deprivation, but it is absolutely true. And the second thing is um, I see a lot of parents getting very stressed out about things that they are not actually in control of. For example, um, wake windows or uh, their infant sleeping a certain length of time. And I would just challenge everybody to remember the things that they are and aren't in control of around sleep. You are in control of making sleep as safe as possible. You are in control of where your baby sleeps and you know when you offer them the opportunity to sleep, you're not actually in control of whether they sleep. You're not actually in control of how long they sleep for. So just let it go. Just it, it's so freeing and refreshing to think, oh, okay, that's not my responsibility. Take responsibility that you don't have any control over causes anxiety because you begin to think about the what if. And what if is future oriented. A lot of the time people are worrying about things that haven't even happened yet. So just let it go and you'll feel better. I promise. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking, given that I have uh, two teenagers in the house, that's a good parenting lesson all the way through. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, well, I really appreciate you joining us on Real Talk, Lindsay. It is always a joy to talk to you um, and to learn from you. And I, you and I could have nerded out all day long and we'd have been good with it. <laughs> um, but I think you've shared some really great takeaways for our audience and some really some things to challenge them to think about around, you know, what they know or what they think they know or what they've accepted as truth that might not be quite as evidence based as they would think. So I really appreciate that. You're so welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been fun to hang out as usual with a kindred spirit. So yeah. um Thank you so much. And thank you to the audience as well. I hope you guys all have a great evening. Yeah, absolutely. So if you have any questions around this topic or anything related to improving sleep for your family, put them in the feed with a tag for Lindsay or a tag for Newborn Care Solutions. And we'll make sure that she gets it and you get some answers. If you're watching this on replay, or if you want to catch any of our past Real Talk segments, you can access those along with our other content on our website, www.newborncaresolutions.com and click on the education tab. So thanks for joining us and have a great evening. Thanks, bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Real Talk with Tanya Sackowitz podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. And if you liked what you heard, please share it on social media or send it directly to someone you think might benefit. It would also be a huge support if you could rate and review the podcast 
on whatever player you're currently listening on so that other people can find the content easier. You can also connect to us by following us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and TikTok, or checking out our website at newborncaresolutions.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Real Talk Podcast with Tanya Sakowitz.